We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. To this country, not to mention the countless uh, loss of life and limb, literally, of 20 years of fighting and occupying uh, Afghanistan. And the way that this current illegitimate president uh, left was basically he left overnight. The Afghan forces uh, arrived at the uh, bases. There were seven located in Afghanistan to find them empty. He left our uh, tanks, our drones, and other technology that are now in the hands of the Taliban. And then after scoffing at the idea that this would be another Vietnam where we're literally having people run down uh, the airport strip as planes leave or having to rescue people off of roofs, that, that there's no way that would happen. That's just impossible. Those very things happened. And I would suggest that all of us pray because... Number one, I don't even think we should have been in Afghanistan in the first place. Uh, we have a very horrible track record of trying to nation build. It never works. Uh, I think there were other motivations for why we were there. But there is a reality that just like ISIS began to cause a lot of problems and become a very real problem to us in our homeland, I am probably not even rely on any prophetic you know, activity or anointing at all to say that the Taliban gaining strength in Afghanistan and spreading and basically joining with their brothers in Al-Qaeda will probably result in some type of problem over here in America. And so it is our job to pray. You know, we really should be like the prophet Isaiah where he was shocked whenever God did anything that he was not aware of. In fact, there's one uh, line where he says, God must have hidden this from me. He didn't need to watch uh, the Communist News Network or CNN. He didn't need to watch MSDNC. Uh, he didn't need to watch even Fox News. Obviously, I'm being facetious. All he did is he watched to hear and to see what God was saying, and he was able to uh, become basically a strategic person uh, in a battle against, I think it might have been the Syrians that Israel was engaged in. Like he would literally say, they're going to go here, they're going to do this, so much so that they felt that they had a spy in their camp and they could not defeat the Israelites. That's the level of discernment. That's the level of prophetic insight and revelation that we're going to need to walk in, uh, number one, to save this country, and number two, to turn things around when we sense any attacks against enemy forces. And quite frankly, we do have those enemy forces even in our own government. 
So I want to encourage you to pray, to ask God what he is saying in this season, in this situation, because it's not over for America, but we do have our work cut out for us. And today, we're going to dive into something that has nothing to do with Afghanistan. In fact, it might be an actual relief uh, because that has been very concerning and, quite frankly, infuriating. And we're going to dive into critical race theory. Uh, I'm going to refer to it as CRT for short. There's going to be several episodes. I'm not sure if it's two, if it's three. In fact, right now on my phone, I'm just going to set the timer to talk as far as we get in my notes because I've been researching this for weeks, and uh, and then we'll go we'll go from there, uh, seeing you know what will the next part be, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you've not listened, uh, by the way, I have in my notes where it says I'm not sure how many episodes, but we'll play it by ear. I thought that was very witty of myself. But if you've not listened to any of the previous episodes, the actual um, two before this one, I would highly recommend it because in that one, I laid the foundation on how the root of our public education system was centered in Marxism. And the founding father of our public school system, John Dewey, was one of the main players in that. And I want to refresh your memory just a little bit before we dive into the context, the content of this, which is reading, writing, and racism, critical race theory, part one. So John Dewey was one of the original of the cabal of progressives, and he destroyed public education. He went to Moscow in 1928 when Stalin had initially taken over, and he observed the classrooms and what was going on in it under communism, and he liked it. He liked the idea of supporting a common interest versus individualism. He bragged about it, uh, and he wrote a piece about it in The New Republic, which is a progressive magazine that's actually here to this day. You can take a look at their website if you want at uh, newrepublic.com. But when you go over there, and again, I have all these links in the show, no- show notes, you um, have you know um, things like, you know, some of it can be, you know, good like Afghanistan is a disaster, but it was always going to be as a title. The far right thinks wokeness is why America lost in Afghanistan, which I've not heard that at all. It's ridiculous. Then you get on down and you, you see a mean, scary face of Trump. And by the way, it's written by his um, one of his family members that he has discredited because she hates him called Donald Donald's plot against America. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on behind the GOP strategy to outlaw trans youth. I mean, you can just tell from these things that, um, you know, obviously they're they're far left. And uh, so this is the type of material that uh, John Dewey read and also contributed to with his magazine or with his article in this magazine. And uh, it says that the New Republic was founded by Herbert Crawley. Uh, Walter Lippmann and Walter Will, through the financial backing of heiress Dorothy Payne Whitney and her husband Wilford Strait, who maintained majority ownership. The magazine's first issue was published on November 7, 1914. The magazine's politics were, and still are, liberal and progressive, and as such concerned with coping with the great changes brought about by middle-class reform efforts designed to remedy the weaknesses in America's changing economy and society. Hopefully by now, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, you recognize that language as socialism. The magazine is widely considered important 
to changing the character of liberalism and the direction of governmental intervention, both foreign and domestic. Most important of them was the emergence of the U.S. as a great power on the international scene. In 1917, the New Republic urged America's entry into the Great War on the side of the Allies. One consequence of the war was the Russian Revolution of 1917. During the interwar years, the magazine was generally positive in its assessment of the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin. Now, let me remind you, Joseph Stalin killed uh, 66 million of his own people. However, the magazine changed the posi its position after the Cold War began in 1947 and 1948. Its leftist editor, Henry A. Wallace, departed to run for president on the progressive ticket. After Wallace, the magazine moved toward positions more typical of mainstream American liberalism. Throughout the 1950s, the publication was critical of both so Soviet foreign policy and domestic anti-communism, particularly uh, McCarthyism. And during the 1960s, the magazine opposed the Vietnam War but often criticize the new left. Now, the new left are those crazy people that showed up in the 60s, the hippies that would stand around after smoking some pot, doing some drugs, having some uh, orgies. They would go out and protest the Vietnam War. And they uh, you know, were part of what was called the new left. Now, Crawley was considered at the time the leader of the progressive movement, and he's considered a founder of the modern liberalism movement. Littman, now he was interesting. Most journalists are far left uh, Democrats. Um, some are maybe more moderate left, but they're all left except I think maybe 2%. I, I, it's either 91% or 98% of journalists are Democrats. Um, and so Littman, he is probably in the same line of that. Uh, he became a member alongside uh, Sinclair Lewis of the New York Socialist Party. And then in 1911, Lippmann served as secretary to George R. Lunn, the first socialist mayor of, and I can't even pronounce the name, it's some city in New York, uh, during uh, Lund's first term. Now, he resigned his post after four months, finding Lund's programs to be worthwhile in and of themselves, but inadequate as socialism. So if that tells you anything, this guy was a bona fide socialist, right? Uh, his first wife was the daughter of Ralph Albertson, a pastor of the Congregational Church. Now, guess what? He was one of the pioneers of Christian socialism and the social gospel movement in the spirit of George Heron. So during his stays at Harvard, Walter often visit, visited the Albertson's estate in West Newbury, Massachusetts, which is kind of weird because I thought if you were socialist, you don't live in estates, but maybe I missed something in West Newberry, Massachusetts, where they had founded a socialist cooperative called the Cyrus Field Wilford Cooperative Colony. He also appeared to have a poor opinion of Americans as related to voting and being informed. So obviously we now have you know two communists that are um, founding the New Republic. And then the last one, Will, was another progressive intellectual, which they've caused us a lot of problems, who started, quote, writing about the lives of new immigrants in popular magazine articles over time. He wrote increasingly about national resources and social policy. His book, The New Democracy, 1912, uh, came to serve as a statement for the U.S. progressive movement and its economic reforms. Okay, so, you know, like attracts like. Birds that uh, flock together, right? All of those little sayings that we have. Uh, obviously, all of these people were socialists, including Dewey. Now, the ones that most liked Dewey's writings were school administrators. Therefore, 
all the way back then, Marxism became deeply ingrained in our schools and how these people ran them and even in some of the teachers. Now, we're seeing the maturing of the fruit of this movement that's been patiently uh, plotting forward since Dewey. Uh, we're, we're seeing it begin to show its ugly self. Um, it's the, you know, ugly sister. Uh, but um, it's been there for a long time. You know, like when I was back, back when I was in school, we were actually taught history. Now I could look back and say, yeah, there was some left-leaning stuff in there, but patriotism, the pledge of allegiance, the belief in God, all of those things were there until I got in high school. Once I got in high school, now all of a sudden teachers can't have Bibles on their desk. Uh, you can't pledge of allegiance because of the reference of God. You can't do any of this stuff because it's not a separation of church and state, which, by the way, we're going to dive into this in the future. And uh, so I started seeing some of these communistic, leftist, anti-patriot, anti-God uh, laws and policies coming in. And I remember it bothered me. And I remember praying at the flagpole began when I was, I think, a senior. So that would have been 1991, maybe uh, even before then, I'd have to look back because it was a it was a peaceful protest to all of the changes that were coming into our schools. And so when you look at people like Dewey, you got to understand that they reject the Declaration. They reject the Bill of Rights. They reject the Constitution. Uh, they reject all of those things because all of those things were founded on faith in God. And Marxists don't believe in any God but the state. So I want you to come away with this thought for our first section here that there is no such thing as academic freedom anymore. It's indoctrination. And indoctrination has been the goal for a long time. So with that refreshing of Dewey in the public school system, I want to get to the hotbed, the seedbed, the disgusting bed of the main place of indoctrination, and that is our college campuses. This, the communist, the Marxism is deeply and largely embedded in our college campuses and it's the main vehicle of indoctrination all the way from the people that run the colleges to the people that teach in the colleges that's why you can send little Susie to a college and she's going there to get a degree in teaching or maybe Johnny is going to get a degree in engineering and they come out with a liberal arts degree and they're part of Antifa or BLM because that is what it's about it is no longer about teaching your child, whether it's in public school or it's in college, reading, writing, and arithmetic and how to function and gain a skill so you can be, uh, you know, a benefit to society. That's no longer their purpose, even in the public school system, even in elementary school. That's not the purpose. So as long as you understand that, then you can be on the alert for what is happening in your local school. But it's no longer about that. It is about, and I'm going to prove it to you because they have it in their own writings, the indoctrination of our children with Marxism. Now, you pay way too much for a child's education, college education nowadays. But you dang sure pay way too much for them to come back Christmas break, disrespectful, trained Marxists that hate this country and really everything that you stand for. So how did this happen? Well, Again, if you go back to the, 
the new left of the 60s, actually probably about 1959, I believe, is when they started, all the way through the 70s, uh, the anti-capitalist, anti-war hippies, the likes of the Weather Underground, they took John Dewey's advice and they went from protesting and doing marijuana and all those things, which maybe they actually still do them, but now they're under the respectable guise as being an educator and a professor because they realized that indoctrination of our school kids is absolutely necessary in order to overthrow the deeply ingrained beliefs of American exceptionalism, hard work, capitalism, individualism, and all of the things that makes the experiment of America, this republic, great. And these ideas, they're outlined in our founding documents. Again, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, documents that Marxists hate. Because, again, not only do they point toward a faith in God, but also they have protected this country so far from complete takeover by these crazy people. So the idea that a constitution is a living document, meaning that it must be adapted as society progresses, is where that came from. That's why they say that, because they know the constitution is what protects us from them. And so if they can get the idea, like you had things where Pelosi said the Constitution is trash, it's no longer relevant. Obama said the same thing. I mean, the reason they're saying that, guys, is they want to do away with the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Even our Declaration of Independence on July 4th, everybody's like, yeah, we had a a Declaration of Independence where we could become a a country that uh, has slavery. Like the 1619 Project literally says that America was started to preserve and expand slavery, which is complete lies, but people believe it. So if you indoctrinate enough generations of children who then become leaders of this nation, who are trained Marxists and social activists that believe that America is irredeemably evil and racist, then eventually America, as we know it, will no longer exist, and this is their end game. Here's what the likes of Dewey began all the way back in the 1950s, you know, so he plans his ideas. They begin to take, you know, some momentum here. And, uh, and we see several things happen. Uh, they reduced man from being a spiritual being made in the image of God to man that was wealth-seeking and a consuming animal. So Darwinism, Darwinism is the one that really brought in the idea that we're just animals. We're not actually... A divine, divinely created species with an intellect and a likeness that is, uh, you know, second to none. I mean, there's no animal uh, on the planet that is like the human. We are extraordinarily complex. Uh, we have a free will. We have emotions that are able to um, propel us toward greatness or uh, bring us toward our own destruction. I mean, we are uh, not mammals. We are not animals like they're saying but this idea that we're merely animals is also what has removed from america the sanctity of life you know it's like what does it matter if you kill a baby in the womb it's just a lump of cells it's just an animal that's what you know animals in the wild do and so they've reduced us to uh, being animals in a jungle a concrete jungle that's destroying the planet wait till i get on that topic no longer was man aspired to be amazing by mankind's very design as a creation of God, but now man is unable to help themselves without the help of the state. 
Because if there's no God, then who's going to get you out of trouble? See? Oh, the government. The government will get you out of trouble. Reason, socialist reason, began to permeate the school system, especially higher education, and that replaced religious conviction. Because remember, John Marx and Marxists are atheistic. They don't believe in a God. It's always this state. And so religion was let go and replaced with education. Richard M. Weaver said in his book, Ideas Have Consequences, that the separation of education from religion, one of the proudest achievements of modernism, is but an extension of the separation of knowledge from metaphysics. And the education thus separated can provide their kind of indoctrination. In other words, change a nation through information, a.k.a. education, a.k.a indoctrination and entertainment that's why in movies and sitcoms and comedies and um, you know all of the things that Hollywood is producing that the media is propagating and that the school system is indoctrinating all of these things are to change the mind of Americans from patriotic Americans to Americans that hate this country and want to tear it down that's exactly what they've done Now you know why prayer was taken out of the classrooms and the Pledge of Allegiance. It wasn't just one very unpleasant woman who hated God. She found allies, and she worked with them in our education system and in our government that believed as she did. There's no way just one person could have done what she did. She had to find allies, which, by the way, she ended up getting murdered and chopped in little pieces and buried in the ground. Uh, I can't remember her name. Um, Very unpleasant woman, but... This is something that we as believers must get. It's the influencers that determine the direction of society, which is why it's crucial to have their ears as believers full of wisdom and practical solutions, not just goosebumps and being slain in the spirit on a Sunday or warming a pew. I mean, if you look at it, you've got Moses who was raised in the house of Pharaoh, learned the ways of Egypt so that he could found a nation. You have Joseph, Joseph, who was a second in command of Pharaoh, meaning he had Pharaoh's ear. Whatever Joseph thought that needed to be done, Pharaoh would consider it and more than likely did it. I mean, you've got time and again, Daniel, who was an advisor to what, three kings? Uh, You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were also appointed in government. Where did we lose the reality that we cannot abdicate, abdicate our role in society, but instead we should be the most wise, the most creative, the most innovative, the most, um, what's the word, solutionary that there is on the planet Bill Gates should have known Microsoft. That should have been a Christian's. Facebook should have been a Christian's. Instagram should have been a Christian's. The computer technology itself should have been a Christian's. I mean, when you look at Carver, who invented uh, all kinds of stuff from peanuts, that's what I'm talking about. A black man in the day where either that you were just let off the plantation or you were still on it. And this brilliant, God-fearing man got most of his inventions by meditating on God. Where are we at? Why are we not engaged in society on those levels? And there are movements. you got the government school of, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? The pastor that got arrested over in Tampa, Rodney Howard Brown. You've got the um, 
other places where they're raising up uh, government leaders to be able to be elected and serve this country. I mean, you've got some things that are shifting, but guys, it's going to be every one of us taking action and consistent action and throwing politeness out the window. I think we are too polite. You know, I don't think it was very polite when Jesus called Peter Satan. I don't think it was very polite when Jesus told the Pharisees that they were sons of hell and that they produced twice the sons of hell in their disciples. That wasn't very polite. When you're going after a system that is threatening God's intentions, sometimes kindness is displayed and throwing politeness out the window. Now, we know that because God is love, Jesus was love, and everything he said was sourced from that. But I can tell you that if we love man's opinions, or we love man more than we love God and speaking truth, we will never, ever take back this community, this country. Your faith in God must translate into practical, tangible ways in society. It has to show up in tangible ways in your city where schools are top notch and they you know, are teaching uh, actual concepts that students need to learn, where your uh, crime rate is down, where families stay together, where drug abuse no longer has a place. That's going to be us. If you look at any time in history in this nation where there had to be a severe um, recognition of what was going on in our country and change, the church always, always, always played a part. And we're at that time. We're at that time. And I believe firmly that God is trying to prevent another war on the soil of America. He doesn't want us fighting each other. He doesn't want us killing each other. He wants to stop it. And that requires us to sometimes follow the same tactics that the more shrewd sons of darkness follow. And that is, we've got to get the ear of the influencers. And our Christianity must mean more than going to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday, plopping some money in the offering basket, singing a few happy songs, listening to a sermon, and then going to our home and being comfortable while at the same time we're losing our country. What are we going to leave our children? We cannot have the same attitude that Hezekiah had which was, well, you know, it's not going to happen in my time, so I'm fine with it. We have to think generationally, what kind of country are we going to leave our children? And so here we have, you know, the 70s, 50s to 70s, and it gave rise to the new left movement on college campuses, uh, specifically with the Students for Democrat, Democratic Societies were the most prominent of the groups in the new left movement uh, which was the most prominent of the groups in the New Left Movement, and they were founded in 1959. Now, they published a manifesto called the Port Huron Statement, and it's here that the New Left, quote, avoided traditional forms of political organization in, a, in favor of strategies of mass protest, direct actions, and civil disobedience. Okay. Now, their greatest influence and considered the father of the SDS and the New Left Movement was actually a German-born Marxist named Herbert Marcuse. He was a fierce anti-capitalist. He fled Berlin, but trashed America anytime he could. I don't know why he stayed here. He taught on several 
uh, at several American universities, including Columbia and Harvard. He wrote a widely read book called One Dimensional Man that propelled him as a father figure of the student anti-war movement. And he, like the New Left, wasn't happy with just indoctrination. He wanted activism, concrete revolution. He recognized that, quote, the affluence of capitalist society made a masses-led revolution impossible. Therefore, it would emerge, quote, from the intellectuals working with the disenfranchised. In other words, you have to create classes and pit them against each other. I do want to apologize if you can hear the lawn mowing. I decided to record this podcast back in a guest room because uh, I like the sound, the audio quality, and the people that mow our lawn decided to show up right in the middle of my podcast. <laughs> so hopefully you can't hear it, but let me read you this highlighted portion, uh, portion from uh, Marcuse and how he thought. He said, thus economic freedom would mean freedom from the economy, from being controlled by economic forces and relationships, freedom from the daily struggle for existence, from earning a living. Political freedom would mean liberation of the individuals from politics over which they have no effective control. The most effective and enduring form of warfare against liberation is the implanting of material and intellectual needs that perpetuate obsolete obsolete forms of struggle for existence so what is he saying in some of his nonsense this is what he's saying forsake free market capitalism for collectivism now that word collective should sound very familiar because it's one of those code words those keywords for marxists to them the government will eventually wither away as more and more citizens move to collectivism Now, has this ever worked? Of course not. You can look at China. You can look at North Korea. You can look at Cuba. You can look at Venezuela. And you can see that none of this works. Now, Mark Levin wrote, quote, the imposition of Marxist ideology from abstraction to reality has left tens of millions of suffering and dead human beings in its wake. So if you look at the fact that Stalin killed 66 million people. Pol Pot, he killed, I believe is 50 million. We've got over a hundred million people that were all killed from Marxist ideology. So in other words, when you translate Marxism into the real world, it necessitates the killing off of those who don't agree. So what's very advantageous for the Marxists is any discord and chaos because they recognize that economic upheaval, racial upheaval, any upheaval is where, quote, protest grows and spreads. So back to the new left movement. Remember, Marcuse is the one that advocated political political organization uh, in favor of strategies of mass protest, direct actions, and civil disobedience versus the more traditional forms of political organization, which was campaigning, getting votes, etc., etc. So they have to cause chaos. That's how it works. There's no way they're going to shock us 
out of the affluence of a capitalist society unless there's a lot of chaos and a lot of disenfranchisement uh, in the classes. That's why they have to pit us against each other. That's why uh, they will purposefully ruin the economy. That's why they will have new green deals hidden in infrastructure bills voted by 19 Republicans that is nothing but a checklist for what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wanted. See, all of this, all of this is to create upheaval so that the protest grows and it spreads. That's why every time a black man is killed by a police officer, you will find organized Paid for vehicles, bricks dropped off on street corners, protesters under the guise of BLM and uh, Antifa protesting within minutes. People that are paid by the hour. That's the whole purpose. Protests like wildcat strikes back in the day, absenteeism, sabotage, flare-ups against union leadership, the struggles of oppressed social minorities and the women women's live movement. All of that, any mistrust, struggle, breakdown, disintegration of morale is capitalized for the purpose of tearing this country apart. One professor, Jonathan M. Weiner, told the Times, quote, Marxism and feminism, Marxism and deconstruction, Marxism and race. This is where the exciting debates are. It's planned, guys. We've got to know that. And so for our purposes... It is, quote, academia and its rule over the education of generations of students that serves as the most potent force. Sorry, my alarm was going off for Marxist indoctrination and advocacy and the most powerful impetus for its acceptance and spread. And these aren't Marks. Uh, Mark Levin's words only. These are the words and ideas articulated from Marxist professors and educators. I'm reading a lot to you out of the book American Marxism by, by Mark Levin. So it's if you look at this, and I'll probably end on this note before we go into um, uh, part two, but the seduction of Marxism is a utopian ideal. The eradication of evil, corruption, violence, oppression, the wondrous bliss of the just kingdom. And really, it's a desire of the restoration of the Garden of Eden before the fall, but they don't know that. And this type of ideal is wrapped up in the language of Marxism. It's a collective salvation and a social mysticism that's very religious. It's very theological. It's a rebirth of society and the purification of man's nature. These ideas were, and they are, very attractive to millennials, as we saw many of the widespread violent riots initiated and organized over the summer months after the death of George Floyd. There's a tipping point. They feel that now is the time. They're close to the moment of transformation in this country. It's that conviction. If we move now, and every time that uh, something happens, it just adds more and more to that conviction. It's where everything it, it quickens, it alivens, it coheres. The smallest incident carries immense importance for these trained Marxists, the college-age students, millennials have uh, been trained they're coming forth and fighting what they perceive to be racism, but actually they're playing a role in destroying the very lives that they could have in capitalism. And you must conform. And if you refuse, they'll bring it to you. So this is part one. Um, 
I want to encourage you to read, uh, again, recommend reading American Marxism uh, by Mark Levin, the book uh, Socialists Never Sleep by uh, Chemi or Chami. Chal- Chalmy. <laughs> I've had uh, definitely had uh, that one recommended on uh, other books. Uh, the Christian Left, because what fascinates me about the Lippmann character of the New Republic is he married the daughter of a pastor who promoted Christian socialism. There's no such thing. They try to take a few scriptures out of Acts and uh, probably Thessalonica, the letters to Thessalonica, and they, and they take these scriptures and they say, yeah, Jesus was a socialist. No, no, he wasn't. And neither was early church. In fact, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. And if you didn't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever, which is pretty bad. And so there, that's an ideal that doesn't exist. But like any false doctrine, you can find plenty of scriptures to support your stance. So the Christian left is a really good book that highlights some of that. So we'll continue with this uh, discussion on our education system next week uh, because we're going to take it from college down into your local public school and how critical race theory is becoming a very, very big problem. I'll see you next week.